Why, right after Easter, would we go all the way back to the Old Testament, to Psalm 19? Very, very appropriate, because since Christ rose, as we celebrated last week, we should be here this morning to glorify Him, as we've been singing about, as we did through this wonderful baptism of Catherine. Where are you, Catherine? Oh, you're behind that large gentleman there. Okay, I was looking for you there. Reasons galore for us to glory in God so often, and really that's what Psalm 19 is all about. And so I would invite you to to go along with me. Because of how wonderful this book is, I'm going to be a little more expository than usual. It's on page 390 in the Pew Bible. Reach I I know it's an effort, but lean forward and reach for it and flop back and you're going to be fine. Uh, But on page 390, uh, this is a psalm of David, and it's just a wonderful psalm about the glory of God. C.S. Lewis, have you ever heard of C.S. Lewis? He called Psalm 19, and I quote, the greatest poem in the Psalter, that is the whole book of Psalms, the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And it really does have this lyrical quality that is just beautiful. It just so happened that it's wonderfully broken up into three sections. David broke it up that way, and we're going to do the same and have it read in segments. And it just so happens, good old people of Southern Baptist descent, that it turns out to be a wonderfully uh, three-point alliterative service. And it really is, because it really begins about the glory of God that we see in the skies, then the glory of God in Scripture, and then the glory of God in our souls. No, I promise I'm not going to do things like that every week. But it just fits. And that's what we're here to talk about this morning. So let's talk about glory in the skies. We had Rusty come up and share about his uh, uh, wonderful love for creation and nature and and what he would see often in the sky. Uh, I I got to hear it in the first hour, and he just painted the pictures for me, and he took me away. It was just wonderful. But let's start with glory in the skies. And and Missy, Miss Kelly is going to come up and read each of these three segments. So Missy, come on up. The first section is Psalm 19. Verses 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour, pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. This is the word of the Lord. The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens do, and they do so in an ongoing way. The Hebrew word there is a verb, declare. It connotes ongoing action. In fact, if you go back to the root of that Hebrew word, it's a wonderful earthly sign. It's an image symbolized by this a, a bubbling spring, bubbling up from the time of creation and continuing to flow. So it goes on and on, and it's an ongoing thing. You see that in verse 2. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. So it's ongoing. And then verse 3, they have no speech, as we have human speech. They use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. You know, they, they, they don't have speech, but it's not needed. They proclaim it beyond words, as you well know. Just look at the beauty of nature. Uh, uh, you walk up, I don't know if Rusty, like you did in the first hour, you, you step up to the edge of the Grand Canyon for the first time. How many of y'all have been to the Grand Canyon? 
You understand what I mean when I say postcards don't do it justice? You step up to the edge of that, and it takes your breath away. And if you don't have this sense of, I'm rather small, and I believe in a creator, I don't, I don't know what's wrong with you. It's just amazing. It proclaims without the need for words. I thought about uh, this morning, just before I stepped up to preach uh, the first time, I thought about uh, Rebecca Yoder. She was with us on the South Africa mission trip this last time, uh, and we were at the team house down there uh, outside of Cape Town. And you got a lot of wind that can whip around there. We're right there on the beach, and, I mean, you have wind coming from the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean, and it can be pretty strong. It feels like the whole house almost can shake, and definitely the... uh, the storm glass can, can shake, and you've got the, the uh, sliding glass doors there that can shake. And I just remember Rebecca saying, you know, whenever I hear that, it just reminds me, it's God telling me that the Holy Spirit is with us. And I thought that was really cool, and that wasn't just one of those awe things, because, I, you know, the whole week, when, when, especially when I was just run down and, and worn out and everything, I, w- I would hear the wind blowing, and I would think, gosh, that strengthens me. And I still think about that every time I hear wind uh, Uh, bumping up against glass or whatever, I think, okay, the Spirit is with me. You know, these these wonderful bits of creation just speak without the need for words as to the glory of God. I like the way that Sir Isaac Newton, one of the brightest people ever to walk the planet, summarized it. He said, this most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. This being governs all things, not as the mere soul of the world, but as the Lord over all. And on account of his dominion, he is wont to be called the Lord God. And he is so right. And in a sense, what David does here, I think, is so neat. The first six verses of this psalm, David uses the oldest name for God that's not used very often in Scripture except for the creation account. It's E-L. You can pronounce it Il or, or L. And it's the oldest name we have for God. It goes back to Genesis 1-1. The God, the Creator, the Holy Almighty One who created all things... El, the creator, how appropriate that he uses that word there to celebrate the God of the skies, because we'll see in a minute that he shifts the word in just a moment. All of this you see out there in creation. Has it made you feel small lately, you know, in a positive way, in a positive way that reminds you of God's bigness? Think about it just this way. Our solar system is part of the Milky Way galaxy, right? Okay. If the Milky Way were the size of the entire continent of North America, do you know how big our solar system would be therein? Size of a coffee cup. That's how big it would be. We are one of several hundred billion galaxies in this one, or excuse me, solar systems in this one galaxy, and there are billions of other galaxies, so just incredible when you think about it. Anybody ever heard of the book Theodore Rex? It's about uh, Theodore Roosevelt when he was in the presidency. It's a wonderful, wonderful biography. Uh, Roosevelt, as you know, was very fond of the outdoors. He was responsible for uh, the creation of a lot of our national parks, uh, national monuments, and he loved nature. And whenever he would entertain uh, high-powered diplomats from countries all over the world, he would bring them to the White House, and if they were staying with him, particularly that evening, he would do something at the end of the day. He would invite them all to walk out uh, on the back lawn of the White House and back then they didn't have city lights or anything, so it was just you know brilliant uh, star-filled sky. And he would walk them out there, and he was a very uh, talkative person, as you might know, but he would just fall silent and stand there and look at the sky, not say a word. Well, eventually everyone else who's talking looks over at the President of the United States, and they see that. So all eyes wind up turning heavenward. And he would just stand that way for quite some time. And then he would say, ladies and gentlemen, I believe we are now small enough. It's time to go to bed. <laughs> That's what he would do. 
just as a good, solid, healthy reminder as to how small we are to remind ourselves how big God is. So are you small enough now? Have you looked up lately? Sometimes our eyes can get scaly due to scales of apathy or indifference or preoccupation or tasks at hand or stress or whatever it might be. When was the last time we glorified this God who created all things as he has? Now, What's really cool is you get to verse 7 now, and David turns the attention. He's been talking about the El God, the the God who created all these things. But then he shifts it in verse 7. He turns to another way that we can see the glory of God and through which we can glorify God, which is Scripture, in the Scriptures. Immanuel Kant, the great uh, German philosopher, said, Two things amaze me, the starry sky above and the moral law within. What's cool is we don't even have to look within. We have God's word for us to be amazed by. And we now turn our attention to that for the second reading. Scriptures. Verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, any honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. This is the word of the Lord. Much of what we cannot see about God and glory in God in the sky, we can glory in this book. Now, I'm not a Bible-thumping preacher by any stretch. I hope you know that. But this is a glorious, glorious piece of work right here. And what's beautiful is David shifts the name of God here in verse 7 from the great El God creator of all things to the name Yahweh, the more personal name of God, the more relational one that you find in the Old Testament. It's really the personal name of God himself, which he gave to Moses. And in these verses, it's so fascinating that, that there's this thing called a hexapla. It begins in verse 7 there. And I think this is where C.S. Lewis would say it gets wonderfully lyrical. It's a hexapla, technically. What it is is he gives six names uh, for the law of God or the word of God, six adjectives for the word of God, and then an operation of the word of God. So there, there's a name for God's word. There is an adjective for it and then an operation of it. And there are six of those. And I just want to read through those, starting at verse 7. The law of the Lord, there's the name of it, is adjective perfect. What's the operation? Refreshing the soul. That's a great word there. It's the same word used in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He, what? Restores my soul. Uh, The word there is refresh. He refreshes my soul. It's the same word there. So again, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. Secondly, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making the wise simple. That's a wonderful Hebrew phrase that means making those who think they are so wise and so knowledgeable simple again so they would be open to God's leading. Sometimes we can get too high on our own selves and our own intelligence and fail to lean not on our understanding but on his Uh, The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. He is pure, and it's an enduring purity. 
And finally, the ordinances, ordinances of the Lord are sure, and all of them are righteous. The word ordinances there in the Hebrew literally means the justices of the Lord. In other words, those things that you and I yearn for that are out in the world that are so unjust that we want to be set right, whether it's poverty or hunger or violence, uh, uh, whatever it might be, uh, we want it all to be set right. And this is a promise that those justices are sure. They will come along. All things will be made right in the long run as God intended. It's a wonderful passage. And then it moves to how precious the word of God is. Go down to verse 10. They are much more precious than gold, the scriptures, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. It speaks to how wonderful this book is. Now, I'm going to do something. I came across a reading that I had never come across uh, last week, and I I was kind of surprised by it. Uh, No one in the first service knew it except Mark Coggin, and Mark came to me afterwards and said, I believe that's a significant uh, reading that the Gideons used. And back uh, at World War II, uh, they had it written in these Bibles that would go out with uh, soldiers who would be going to head out to serve our country and defend freedoms and all. And uh, it's just a wonderful piece. So I'm going to read through it one time, and then I'm going to ask you to read through it with me in a litany style in just a moment. But what I want you to do is, is imagine in your mind either the Bible that you have, uh, perhaps right here, or one that is very special to you, whether it's a family Bible, one back home, wherever it might be, and think about that as I read this. Go ahead and put it up there. Okay, it starts, and it's a little chopped off over here, but you can see what it says. Uh, this book is the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts, and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to a resurrected life in Christ. Yes, to glory itself for eternity. Now, I'd like for us to just read this together in a slower litany style. Go to the next one here. This starting over, and join with me. This book is the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts 
and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to a resurrected life in Christ, yes, to glory itself for eternity. That's what this book is. That's just a little bit of what it is, and that's beautifully put. I hope right now we have even even more of an appreciation for what this book is about and how we can glory not just in the book itself but the one to whom it points. How should all of that affect us when we realize just how great the Word of God is? Well, I hope it would humble us toward a reverence where we would pray that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable to Him. And that's what will be read in just a moment by Missy because it really moves toward this wonderful part at the end, a climactic part where really it becomes all the more personal. So I invite you to hear this final part of the reading, followed by a song uh, by Keith and by Anna, which really crystallizes all of what's being read. Verses 12 through 14. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, my rock and redeemer. The the word there for redeemer is wonderful. The word redeemer there refers back to Leviticus 25, where a family member would be redeemed. What do I mean by that? Uh, if someone in your family, even an extended family, became so poor that he or she had to sell himself or herself into slavery, it was commanded in the Word of God that you go and buy that person back out of slavery. You redeem them. Is that not precisely what Jesus did when he came close to us and became family with us, became not just our next of kin, but our very friend who died for us on the cross? He became family. And died for us. It's wonderful if you look at verse 4 where it says, In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun when it's glorifying the sky, the God of the skies. Fast forward to uh, John 1.14. And the word became what? Flesh. And dwelt among us, walked among us. It literally means pitched his tent among us. I always love that. At one point all we could do was glory God, glory, glorify God in the skies, but now he has pitched his tent with us. It reminds me of parable that Frederick Beekner shared called Message in the Stars. And he talks about how uh, one day God decided to share with the world that he really did exist. So one night he fashioned the stars in such a way that it said God exists. I mean, he wrote it in the sky. And uh, people were just amazed by that. The next night he put, I exist. You know, and he would just have a different kind of phrase each time. I'm here. You know, here I am. Okay, so people thought that was really cool, and then, you know, they started getting their lawn chairs out each night, and they would go out and watch, watch the show, watch this message in the stars, and God decided to, like, put on a light show, put different colors in the sky, even have some celestial music playing. So people would go out each night with their little, you know, drinks with them and, and, and sit there on the lawn chair and just marvel at this message. 
well, there was a little boy who never got to see this because he always went to bed earlier, and his father decided, I need to let him stay up. I'm going to even let him uh, t- entice him outside by letting him chew gum. He might be a little tired and groggy, but I'll give him so he gives him some bubble gum. He says, son, I want to show you something. Little five-year-old kid, they walk out there, and he's, he's got his dad's hand, you know, and they're walking out, and he looks up, and the dad says, now, son, see, God exists. Do you see where it says God exists? That means he's there. Isn't that great? The son was chomping his gum. And he looked at his dad and looked at the message in the sky there, looked at his dad again, looked at the message, and he said, so God exists, so what? And after that, enough people heard the little boy say that, that, it just, that message kind of trickled out, and it just kind of went limp after that. Nobody would go out there to be a part of this, and people lost interest in the fact that God wrote this message in the stars. What's the point? What difference does it make if he's up there? What difference does it make? It's the answer to the question I used to hear Frank Tupper share in my theology class when Dr. Tupper would say, you know, if it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't believe in God. I think he's right. What's the point? What's the good in believing in a prime mover, a demiurge, whatever name that being has been given from the ancient ages until now? What difference does it make? Except there's one who became family with you and me and died for you and me. That's reason enough to give him glory. And it's reason enough for you and me <clears throat> to share it with other people. And let me close with this. There's a guy named Michael Card. Some of you have heard of him. He's a wonderful songwriter and singer. He was on a mission trip to China one time, and let me just read a little portion of his journal. He said, again and again in China, I talked to people who had never heard of Christianity, never heard of Jesus, never heard a single word from the Bible. Yet through nature and their God-given conscience, through the skies and moral law, they believed in God. Not only did they believe God existed, they had derived some understanding of his loving character because he provided food, water, and a beautiful world. One old woman told me, I've known him for years, I just didn't know his name. And that's where you and I come in, brothers and sisters, because we need to share that name out there. The best way we can glorify him is to get his name out there for people who know that there is something out there, and they have some amorphous, vague theology of knowing that there's a God who loves them, But what's his name? Who is he? And how can I have relationship with him? That's what we are to be about. With that, let's close with prayer. Lord, thank you so much that we can glory in your creation, that we can glory in your scriptures, that we can glory in the reality of your son Jesus who is with us alive even now, whose resurrection we celebrated last week, whose spirit resides in us if we confess faith in him. As one confess faith this morning through baptism, Lord, we have that opportunity. Lord, if anyone does not know him personally in this place, we would ask that you would touch their hearts that they might come forward and make that courageous step of confessing faith in him. Lord, we just thank you for all the glory you present to us. May we, in our own feeble ways, be conscientious of our need to glorify you back. We pray these things in your name. Amen.